Chapter Thirty Two of Dawn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sunny. Dawn by Eleanor H. Porter. Chapter Thirty Two. The Key. There was no work in the winding-room Saturday afternoons, and it was on Saturday afternoon that Susan found Keith sitting idle-handed in his chair by the window in the living-room. As was her custom, she spoke the moment she entered the room, but not before she had noted the listless attitude and wistful face of the youth over by the window. "'Keith, I've been thinking.' "'Bad practice, Susan, sometimes,' he laughed whimsically. "'Not this time.' "'Poetry?' she shook her head. No, I ain't poets in so much these days, though I did write one yesterday about the ways of the world. I'm going to read it to you, too, by and by. But that's just a common poem about common, everyday folks, and this thing I was thinking about was, was different. And so you couldn't put this into a poem, huh? Susan shook her head again and sighed. No, and it's been that way lots of times lately, especially since I seen John McGuire's poems so fine and beautimous. Oh, I have the perspiration to write lots of times, and I yield up to it and write. But somehow, when it's done, I ain't said a mite of what I wanted to, and I ain't said it the way I want to either. I think maybe having so many of em declined by them editors had made me kinder fearsome. I'm afraid it has, Susan, he smiled. Now, this afternoon, what I was thinking about, once I'd have made a poem of that easy, but today I didn't even try. I knew I couldn't do it. And say, Keith, it was you I was thinking about. Heaven, Susan, a poem out of me? No wonder your muse balked. I'm afraid you'd find even a perspiration wouldn't make a poem out of me. Keith, do you remember... Susan was still earnest and preoccupied. I told you once, and it didn't make no difference if God had closed the door of your eyes. He'd open up another room to you sometime and give you the key to unlock the door. And he has. And now you've got it. That key. I've got it? The key? Yes. That's work down there, helping them blind men and boys get hold of their souls again. Oh, Keith, don't you see? It's such a big, wide room that God has given you, and it's all yours. There ain't no one that can help them poor blind soldiers like you can. And you couldn't have done it if that door of your eyes hadn't been shut first. And that was what give you the key to this big, beautiful room of helping our boys that's come back to us, blinded and half-crazed with despair and discouragement. Oh, if only I could make you see it the way I do. But if I can't say it the right way, there's such a big, beautiful idea there. If only I could make you see it. That's why I wanted to write a poem. I can see it, Susan, without the poem. Keith was not smiling now. His face was turned away, and his voice had grown a bit unsteady. And I'm glad you showed it to me. It's going to help me a whole lot if... If I just keep remembering that key, I think. Susan threw a quick look into Keith's averted face. Then promptly she reached for the folded paper in her apron pocket. There were times when Susan was wise beyond her station as to when the subject should be changed. And now I'm going to read you the poem I did write, she announced briskly. About everyday folks, different kind of folks, six of them. It shows that there ain't 
anyone anywhere that's really satisfied with their lot when you come right down to it whether they've got eyes or not and she began to read the way of the world a beggar girl on the curbstone sat all ragged and hungry-eyed across the street came peggy mcgee the beggar girl saw and sighed i wished i was rich as rich as she for she has got things to eat and clothes and shoes and a place to live and she don't beg in the street when peggy mckee the corner turned she climbed to her garret high from there she gazed through curtainless panes a hanging of lace nearby ah oh, me sighed peggy if i had those and rugs like hers on the floor it seems to me that i'd never ask for nothing at all no more from those curtains that self-same day looked a face all sour and thin. I hate to live in this horrid street in the children's yellin' din. And where's the good of my nice new things when nobody'll see or know? I really think that I ought to be a livin' in rich man's row. A carriage came from rich man's row and rumbled by to the park. A lady sat on the carriage seat. Oh, dear, she said, what an ark! If only this coach could show some style, my clothes so shabby would pass. Now there's an auto quite my kind, but tisn't my own, alas. The auto carried a millionaire whose brow was knotted and stern. A million is nowhere now, thought he, that's something we all must learn. Tis millions many one has to have to be in the swim at all. This trying to live when one is so poor is really all fodderall. A man of millions was just behind, the beggar was passing by. Business at beggin' was good that day, and the girl was eatin' pie. The rich man looked, and he groaned aloud, and swore with his gouty pain, I'd give my millions and more beside, could I eat like that again. Now ain't that just like folks, demanded Susan, as she finished the last verse. Keith laughed. I suspect it is, Susan, and— and by the way, I shouldn't wonder if this were quite the right time to show that I'm no different than other folks. You see, I, too, uh, am going to make a change in living. A change in living? What do you mean? Oh, not now, not quite yet. But you see, I've been doing some thinking, too. I've been thinking that if Father, that is, when Father and Miss Parkman are married, that— But Susan interrupted with a groan. "'My sakes, Keith, have you seen it, too?' Keith laughed embarrassedly. "'To be sure I have. You don't have to have eyes to see that, do you, Susan?' "'Oh, good land, I don't know,' frowned Susan irritably. "'I don't suppose—' She did not finish her sentence, and after a moment's silence Keith began again to speak. "'I've been talking a little to David Patch, the superintendent, you know. We're going to take the whole house where we are for our work.' pretty quick, and when we do, Patch and his wife will come there to live upstairs, and they'll take me to board. I ask them. Then I'll be right there handy all the time, you see, which will be a fine arrangement all around. A fine arrangement, indeed, with you way off down there and living with David Patch. But Susan, argued Keith a bit wearily, I couldn't be living here, you know. I should like to know why not. Because I couldn't. He had grown very white now. Besides, I I think they would be happier without me here, and I know I should be. His voice was low and almost indistinct, but Susan heard and understood. The very fact that once I, I thought...
that I was foolish enough to think. But, of course, as soon as I remembered my blindness, and to tie a beautiful young girl down to— He stopped short and pulled himself up. Susan, are you still there? I'm right here, Keith. Susan spoke constrainedly. He gave an embarrassed laugh. A painful red had suffused his face. I'm afraid I got to talking and forgetting I wasn't alone, he stumbled on hurriedly. I, I mean to go on to say that I hope they'd be very happy. Dad deserves it, and, and if they'd only hurry up and get it over with, it would be easier for me. Not that it matters, of course. Dad has had an awful lot to put up with me already, as it is, you know, the trouble, the care, the disappointment. You see, I, I was going to make up to him for all he had lost. I was going to be Jerry and Ned and myself all in a bunch, and now it turned out to be nothing, and worse than nothing. Keith Burton, you stop! It was the old imperious Susan back again. You stop right where you be, and don't you never let me hear you say another word about you being a disappointment. Jerry and Ned, indeed. I wonder if you think a dozen Jerry and Neds could do what you've done. And no matter what they've done, they couldn't have done a bigger, splendider thing than you've done in triumphing over your blindness the way you've done, nor one that would make your father prouder of you. And let me tell you another thing, Keith Burton, no matter what you've done, no matter how many big pictures you painted or big books you wrote or how much money you made for your dad, there ain't anything you could have done that would do him so much solid good as what you have done. Why, Susan, are you wild? I haven't done a thing, not a thing for dad. Yes, you have. You've done the biggest thing of all by needing him. Needing him? Yes, Keith Burton, look at your father now. Look at the splendid work he's doing. You know as well as I do that he used to be a thoroughly insufficient, uncapacious man. I thought I wouldn't let anybody else say it. Puttering over a mess of pictures that wouldn't sell for a nickel, and that he used to run from anything and everything that was unproprietous and disagreeable, like he was being chased. Well, then, you was took blind. And what happened? You know what happened. He came right up and towed the mark like a man and a gentleman, and he's towed it ever since. And I can tell you that the pictures he's painting now with his tongue for them poor blind boys to see is bigger and better than any pictures he could have painted with his pygmy paints if he worked on them for a thousand years. And it's you that's done it for him, just by needing him. So there. And before Keith could so much as open his lips, Susan was gone, slamming the door behind her. End of chapter 32 Recording by Sunny